Find Your Feet with the Find Your Feet podcast. As I make this introduction, I'm going to jump straight to the crux of this conversation, the bit that kicked me in the guts and made me sit up and go, oh, holy moly, we are screwed, basically. Paolo is he's a NASA scientist. He's now an ultra-distance runner. He could have been an Olympic judo player. Oh, and he grew up in the Amazon and he has rovers on Mars. But actually, he's more famous recently for putting backpacks on bees. So the crux of this conversation is that through his work, Paolo has discovered that within as close as 10 years' time, the cost of apples could be about $100 a kilo, that two-thirds of the fresh fruit and vegetables that we see in our supermarkets in our green greases might not be available to us, and that the decline of bees is a real threat. And if we don't do something about it, well... Yeah, I'm not going to be sitting eating these panada blueberries in front of us in 10 years' time, nor will your children. So when I first kind of met Paolo, he actually came to me as a client for his running. And I didn't really connect to him on a personal level at that time because he's just so smart. And I, I probably go a lot more by feel and he goes a lot more by numbers. But it's also shown me that, again, you, you can't judge people. You can't you can't just assume that you're not going to, you know, you're not going to get and understand a person because when we got into this podcast, I just started to really connect to this man on so many deep levels. And it also really was like looking in a mirror going, Han, you have to find your purpose. So what's going to come across is not just the food security issues, not just the fact that this guy is a super talent and a super smart guy and one that we are blessed to have on the planet working for us, but someone who gets his purpose. It'll come across time and time again. He's so sure of himself. He knows where he's going, but there's no ego attached to it. So welcome to the world of Paolo. If you don't get science, if you don't get bees and insects, And if you don't even really get food security, that doesn't matter. You're going to get so much out of these podcasts. Welcome to the land of Paolo. Um, thank you for having the conversation today and I wanted to kick off with maybe you could just paint us a little bit of picture of you know who you are and where, where you've come from. Yeah uh, well I'm, I'm Brazilian born uh, so I'm Australian today so but uh, yeah I was born in Brazil in the countryside very close to Paraguay um, and I grew up in a farm with my grandfather and my father was there, of course, and my grandfather, and it was a big farm. He was farming cattle and rice. But that was an interesting farming at the time because he also managed to keep half of the farm preserved and it was a big land. So you would, you would think about, you know, how is living in the edge of the Amazon, literally, and living in the Amazon was, was that kind of childhood, so fishing all the time, interacting with nature reading the signals of nature on when it's going to rain, 
when it's going to get dry, when we're going to have a lightning storm or things like that. So it was all interactions and how this, uh, reading the signals of the nature to tell you what kind of things you should do and should be prepared of and when it's a nice time to go out and to, Mm -hmm. to stay at home protected. So is your family, have your family always been farmers in that region or? Uh, I have my four grandparents from four different countries. So one from uh, Sweden, one from Portugal, one from Italy and the other one is a a Latin American Indian. So that is what I am. (laughs) An eclectic mix. (laughs) So they were from uh, missionaries in church up to uh, local Indians and uh, yeah, farmers in, in case of the Italians and, and the Portuguese. Wow. So when, yeah, the farm you said was cattle and then some of it was preserved. Yeah. Preserved as in pristine forest? Absolutely pristine. My grandfather did not steal. The farm is still mm-hmm. he's working, so he's 94 years old and <laughs> still working hard. And he's he kept the half of the farm without any any reason for but his belief that was the best thing to do and today his farm is just an island in a way in that region because we have his farm half of the other side of the farm half of it preserved and then around that is just farming of, of his neighbors and there is nothing kilometers away in terms of forest but what he has so it's like a small reserve that is private, wow. uh, but nobody can get in uh, without his permission. Wow. Uh, and how big is the farm? Uh, that farm, it's around 2,200 acres. So it's a big piece of land. So That's it's huge. talking about about 1,000 acres that he kept untouched. Wow. Incredible. And... As a child, did you get to experience the Amazon? The Amazon, I guess, that we as Australians <laughs> think uh, about. Or? Yeah, but look, the Amazon is awesome in many ways. So it's rich in biodiversity. Mm. So I have seen insects once that I will never see again unless I go there. And it's just unbelievable, beautiful, mm. strange, sometimes you know, scary um, mammals of all sorts rodents of all sorts, big cats, you know, like the jaguars, and it is hot as well. It is uh, very humid. Uh, the rivers are just huge, and it's just a beautiful place to be, at least for some time. Yeah. yeah, it's hard for us, I think. It's certainly hard for me to get my head around how beautiful that must be and how like rich that environment must be coming from Australia. Yeah, it is. I, 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 love, I love the, especially the mornings, um, very fresh mornings, and you have birds singing everywhere. It looks like at night it's as noisy as CBD of a large city like wow. New York because the crickets, the monkeys, all the insects vocalizing, it's huge. And you can imagine that you are not alone there. There are a lot of creatures around you all the time. Yeah. And you can see dogs barking because probably a jaguar is nearby or Mm. other animals are coming. So it is very interesting to see that whole... Oh, my uh, gosh. It takes a while for you, if you go there, to to fall asleep, for Mm. example, because it's just too noisy at night. 
it must be a similar feeling for sort of people from big cities, say in Asia, to come to Tasmania and to see kangaroos. <laughs> no, not kangaroos, but wallabies hopping around and well, you know, wombats. And I imagine it just must be the and, same experience. And seeing the beautiful, because we have a beautiful, especially in Tasmania, we have a beautiful landscape of wonderful forests and nice nature. It's a beautiful piece of the world here. Mm. And uh, everyone listening should, that doesn't know Tasmania should come, should experience that. I completely that. agree. <laughs> so it is, it is fantastic. And I think that I had a, a, a visitor from China, a scientist that came, and he was amazed by how green Tasmania is. And he never saw so much green. Wow. And he said that so many tons of greens and the smell is beautiful mm. and everything was so He wants to bring his family at least to experience that. Yeah. So no wonder you've found your feet in Tasmania yeah, and settled absolutely. here to some degree. But we'll come to that. Um, tell me a little bit more. I'm aware that your father was in the army when you were younger, so you were a child of the army. Yeah, then my father then uh, he he was in the army for for his professional career. So he was part of his time. In the Amazon region, when I was born, he left then and he was moving around the country. And I was with him through all the time as a family, we were moving around. After he left the farm, the, the army, he, we moved again to the farm. So yeah, he was in the army and I, that was a chance for me to know Brazil. Because then I was in Sao Paulo, I lived in Rio, I lived in Brasilia and I was moving all the time because that was... Uh, his his professional activity. Mm-hmm. Uh, he ended up staying a long time in Brasilia, the capital, and he was part of the president's guard. For that reason, he needs to stay a little bit longer. Right. And, and that was quite nice as well to see that beautiful city that is planned. It looks like Canberra in many ways. Reminds me a lot of Brasilia when I go to Canberra. So we have an artificial lake and we have everything planned. It's a nice city to to visit. Yeah, so Brazil really does have a lot going for it. Yeah. yeah. So, and how old were you then when you went back to the farm? And who who was the we when you talk about we? Mum, dad. So it was around around ten to fifteen years old when I moved back and I stayed in the farm for that time. So it was my early teenager times, and that is where you will start getting really. Like you become a little explorer of the region. You will start walking in the tracks that we have. You go fishing for the whole day and come back. Um, you go to places, you ride horses and go around. And that was an interesting time for me to be a teenager in a farm in the Amazon and in close contact with nature. And that, in a way, I think it, it guided me to towards my my interest in science because I became so curious about nature and how things interact and how this ecosystem is linked. So how everything is it's interacting and any reaction, any action brings a reaction and how all the system is alive as a big organism. So I could see that and I was curious about it. And why stars, some of the stars are blinking, some of the stars are not blinking. And why is that happening? And of course, I had no formal uh, education in astronomy to understand that we're talking about planets and I was talking about 
uh, stars was talking about the moon being lazy, coming later every day. So why is that happening? What, what, what is driving this? So that was an interesting insight. Yeah. It's really interesting. That raises two um, thoughts and emotions for me. One, one is um, a really strong sense of connection to your story. You know, I also grew up on a farm and it was also where I just learned to roam and develop like a serious curiosity about the world. (laughs) (laughs) So I really hear that story and I'm sitting here nodding my head connecting. Uh, The second one is, it was a question I was probably saving for later, but maybe it's relevant now is if there was one word to describe, you know, you, what would that word be? For, to frame that question, I guess, when I think about that question for myself, the one word that comes to mind is curious. I think I just, everything I do has been out of a curiosity of, like, yeah. everything. <laughs> yeah, curiosity is it's, it's the basics of, of this, of everything that I'm doing. But I transform that, I think I change that, and I give purpose to that. I think what drives me is purpose today. So if I can't put a word, it's purpose. And then curiosity becomes part of my tool, part of my emotions, or part of what I, what I, it is in a way how I work. It's one of the steps, one of the frameworks towards your purpose. Yes, yes. Yeah, Yeah. love it. Wow. Um, I think that's a lesson in there for all of us, actually. (laughs) So, so that, that probably then leads me on to, um, Asking about the latter part of your youth, I'm aware that you also became very, very involved in the sport of judo and took that to almost the highest level. Can you tell us a little bit about where the judo originated and what that involved for you? I was a very active kid and probably too active for my for my mother's taste. <laughs> so she said, look, we have to do something. He's breaking everything at home and he can't stop. We can't stop him. He's running all the time. Very different from what I am today. So I was 100 kilometers an hour all the time. So they said, we need to do something. And a friend said, well, the best thing you can do is to put him in judo. Then he will come down. It's so There's a lot of discipline in the sport, and there is a lot of discipline in the old ceremonies of judo and, and rankings and there's time for you to be energetic, there's time for you to come down and meditate or whatever you want to do, but I think it's going to be good. And he was spot on. So very young, and then I, when I was in, my father was in the army, I went to a club in the, the army club to, to the judo club mm-hmm. uh, lessons, and, and then I started that very young. I had this short break when I moved to, to the farm again, uh, but still I was training. I used to, to put my kimono and, and just have fun alone. But judo is a sport of two, not just of one. But then when I moved back to to, to the city, then I went again to, to judo. And that was the time when I left the farming and uh, the, the farm and I started working a little bit hard and studying. And I uh, was already moving towards the, the, uh, the high school and then judo was big part of my life so I, I spent a lot of time of hours of my day training mm-hmm. so something around eight hours uh, plus the studying for to be you know admitted at the university wow so it was a big commitment uh, and that was very interesting cross training was part of that so judo was 
about two hours, three times a week. And then the rest was running, was swimming, was walking at times to recover. But I had no formal guidance towards that, but I knew that I was a better athlete by doing that. And the training for me was all about quality. Uh, two of these trainings were all about technique on how can I improve that. It was a very methodic work, looking at small details on how can I be a better judo player. So scientific. Uh, in a way, yeah. Nice. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in a way, yeah. And I, I start reading a lot of people through that way and how my my opponent will 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 play and what are the strengths and how can I play to his weaknesses to to to, to win the, the the fight. So for me, it was a lot of that. So when I went to competitions, for example, was I was full on on looking how everyone and start looking what the strengths of everyone and how can I built my strategy to, to succeed. Uh, the, 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 ap- the apex of that career went at the time that the, the head of the Brazilian, uh, or the coach of the Brazilian Olympic team was from my city and he was with some of the Olympians in, in one of the championships. And Aurelio Miguel, one of the gold, actually he's a gold medalist in mm-hmm. Seoul, he saw me there and said, what's his weight? And I was in his category. He said, I want to, I want to train with him mm-hmm. because he has the technique of my major opponent, who was a German, which is a left hand way of holding the kimono. And uh, he probably knows how to, to, to tell me how can I overcome that kind of um, technique so, of the opponent. So that was the way that I started training with the Brazilian Olympians. Uh, and that was really then, it, my training became more professional at that time. So I was assisted a little bit more nutrition, a little bit more structured towards my training on how to cross training in particular. So how to be better, but they were in, a, in another level. I could see the difference there. I improved a lot at that time. And I probably was going towards to, to, to be with them. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, you were still Olympics. quite yeah. young in, yeah, in was, some ways. Yeah, yeah, I was very young, 17, wow. young. Yeah. 18 years old. And Aurelio was uh, in the top of his career. He was a vice champion. And he became then, the, the, about the time, the next Olympian. He was the gold Olympian and then... How old was he again. when he won his Olympic gold medal? I can't recall now, but probably around 28. So yeah. he had another one to go. He had a lot sure. of years. Yeah. Well. So I was going to be on the back yeah. for a while. And I thought, okay, if I am to go to the Olympics, probably that's going to take me 10 years. Uh, unless, and I hope that would never happen and didn't, uh, or I get hurt or something like that, because he was better prepared. And after him, there was somebody else, so two mm. or three other guys that were at that level as well. So it was a very tough competition and came to a point to say, okay, what I want in my career, do I want to be an athlete or do I want to go and, and pursue another pursue career? career? And I, yeah, then I decided to... To do and, and I think that was the first big lesson for me that I had made a mistake, not the mistake of choosing science. I loved my career and I would I want I don't regret that and I would do that again, but I should not drop sport mm-hmm. and that is what I have done. Yeah. So uh, I was all or nothing. 
So I put all my energy on something or nothing. For me, it was un unconceivable for me to train just six hours a week when I was training eight hours a day. Yeah, it, but <laughs> so th like, there's, there's so many, it's so rich, this conversation, and so many questions <laughs> again that are coming up. But to, to frame that story, you're, you're an energetic kid, way too much energy, um, I hear that, <laughs> and you're thrown into a sport which can provide some structure around that energy and put some boundaries and direct and guide and give purpose to yeah. your energy. Uh, but then that curiosity seemed to kick in as well, and there was this curiosity around how can I do this better, how can I find an angle. I'm guessing there was a fair amount of competitiveness in your personality as well at that age. Uh, yeah, there was, there was for sure. Yeah. yeah, and something that is lingered on, or is that sort of phased out as you've maybe matured? My curiosity, what well, was there? I was a good student as well, and uh, I'm still interested in reading a lot. But the competitiveness, did that? Has that continued on, or is uh, that competition was 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 present? I'm I'm competitive, but I'm not there to say, okay, I have to win all mm -hmm. the time. But that's not my purpose. Yes. That, yeah. that is what... So the competition was almost like the win, the window into the success of the things you've been curious about and tried and given yeah. purpose to. Is that correct? Yeah. The success is not a gold medal for yeah. me. The success is that I, I have achieved my purpose. The outcome of... Yeah. yeah the so outcome of is, the journey towards the purpose. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, but but through that is obviously someone who was incredibly driven and um, I think, you know, it definitely takes a certain type of personality to look up to a situation like those those aspiring Olympians training and you knew you weren't quite at their level but you knew you wanted to train with them. Like th th there is something quite amazing about that because there are some people that wouldn't make that jump, that transition. Um, because that may be out of fear or <laughs> yeah for me it was I knew the commitment that was required for that and what I have to to do to be Olympian in Brazil is not the same as being Olympian in Australia mm -hmm. uh, it's far more, more harder because not only the lack of infrastructure but also the lack of support to the sport so you would see when you see a Brazilian winning an Olympian uh, a competition and becoming a gold medalist or at least being in the Olympics, it's a huge achievement, personal achievement. And literally he has to drop everything just to do that. And it's not it's not new for any Olympian in a way, or most of the Olympians, but there is much less support. So you don't have a committee that will have resources to support all the athletes and the family of the athletes if needed for the athlete to dedicate to that, to have proper nutrition, proper training, access to facilities, access to professional support like physiotherapists and uh, yeah. sports S medicine. And so that raises the question, where were you supported in that journey and that aspiration? Well, there was clearly a, a, an opportunity eventually to go to leave, to go to another country, and if that is what I want to... Uh, but then I need to probably for the next couple of years I need to 
to, to get very good results into some of the competitions. I had a very good coaching discussion at that time of what are the options in that career because I had a big question mark, what should I do now? And uh, yeah, I loved judo. Like, for me, it was, was great. And were, were your parents supportive of whatever decision you made or did you feel that there was some sway towards one or the other? From... No, they said, whatever you want to do, wow. just, just, just go for it. Um, but be mindful what the consequences are of your of your choices, and yeah. that was for me the the, the the point. That was one. the the other The other one I had just for fun. I I just play soccer. It's any Brazilian would yeah. do. But I was a very good goalkeeper. Yeah. I think I'm still. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, and then a, a a a team from Rio saw me play and they invited me to play for them. Uh, I was around 16 years old at the, at the same time. So there was a, a championship in our state, and I was playing for the city, and I was a very good goalkeeper. Oh, <laughs> so they invited just... me to go there. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, it was not my team. I am from Flamengo, the team that Zico played, and, <laughs> and others. Uh, but that was the opposite of us. I think it was Flamengo probably would play for it then. <laughs> so you are one talented person. I mean, talented, but also driven with a lot of purpose and a great sense of curiosity. <laughs> But maybe I just want to finish on this part of the conversation where you were mentioning that one of, if you had a regret, it might be that you didn't continue with sport when you made the transition to Germany. And I'll ask you to just expand on that in a moment. But my experience working as a life coach with high achievers is that people like you and I, <laughs> I put myself in that bucket too, can become very black and white that you do one or the other. You do that success or you failed. And, yeah, and I imagine that that probably that black and white science brain that you have probably was starting to formulate around that time when you made that decision, I can go to Germany and I can study or I can go on and try and be an Olympian. Is that correct? Yeah, that was very clear for me. And I, I was full on. If I am to be a scientist, I want to be the best scientist I can be, not the best scientist in the world. I want to be the best I can. If I want to be a, a, you know, a sportsman and, and be a judo, professional judo player, then I need to be this athlete. I don't need to be the best in the world. I need to be the best I can. Yeah. But the best I can <laughs> means I want to work hard. Yeah. I'm not going to play with that. I'm going to put the, my time in and I'm going to be fully committed to that. And that full commitment means commitment to that and nothing else. Uh -huh. So that is where things start getting black and white. And that was a mistake, I think. Because I could keep enjoying the sport and I would benefit a lot and that probably would help me in my professional career that I have today mm -hmm. so but yeah so there's two pots of gold in there one would be obviously I'm sure a message that you bring to your children now that you know you can you can have a bit more balance in your life and staying healthy and fit will help in your other areas of your life. Yeah, I think there are a couple of things there. The first one is is exactly what you said. You 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 can choose, but have second, third things on around and things that you love to do, and, and don't just drop them. Like mm -hmm. my older daughter and my both my daughters play piano, and if if the older daughter wants to be a, a doctor like her mother. She doesn't need to drop the piano. She was investing so much time for so much a long time, uh, uh, for such a long time. Then she can keep doing that. Uh, 
but also we need to choose things that we are not going to do. So we are, I am miserable in so many things, <laughs> and then I assist in doing those things, and it's just a waste of time, it's a waste of money sometimes, if I buy books about a topic, or if I buy something, it's just don't go there. So I need to choose the things that I am going to be terrible at doing, I'm going to be bad on that. So that is something that I won't do. So you have to make deliberate, for myself, I make deliberate choices of not doing things that are nice, interesting, but it's not for me. I definitely, I should not go there. So you're saying that we we should pick our battles wisely. Yeah. So not spread ourselves too thin. Too thin. Yeah, yeah. because otherwise life doesn't taste quite as great. So yeah. delve deep in a few things, but it doesn't have to be one thing. Is that yeah. correct? So can you give me some hope here? Because I still I still question whether I would love to pursue my sport to higher levels. Probably like all of our listeners who are in their own right and want to or thinking about taking their sport to a new level, a new goal, a stretch beyond where they are now. And that might not just be sport, that might be a career, it might be a hobby, um, being a better mother or father. But the advice that I've had even of recent times is that you can't do both. For me, it's been you can't have a, a high-level business, be a high-level entrepreneur, and then be the elite athlete and be, you know, a, a mother, a wife or whatever. So it's kicked in the black and white brain. So if you take yourself back to that moment when you had to make that decision between judo and your career do you think that athletes let's use athletes for now athletes could be able to do both do you think it's possible for someone to aspire to a higher level and aspire to a higher level in another area of their life it's an interesting question it's a it it really depends on the person but i i think it's going to be really hard to be to excel in two different areas. So to excel in, in a sport and to excel in science, that will be tough. You can enjoy the sport and you can excel in science or you can excel in uh, just playing the other one. So it is a little bit of that. Uh, probably two areas might be enough. Uh, three areas will be tough. Yeah. <laughs> So I'm curious then, I'm going to skip forward to a question that I actually, again, had saved for a little bit later in the conversation, but it is so relevant now, is that how do you, and we haven't given our listeners the opportunity to understand your career in sport, in running, in the running sense as an adult, but so that they know that, you know, you you run, you trial run, and you really enjoy that, how do you find balance being a dad a runner, someone who loves sport, and a very high achiever in your career, which involves a huge amount of travel and a huge amount of energy, no doubt. How do you juggle that balance? Yeah, um, that's a good question. I think I think the the most important part, if you have a busy life and you want to, to do something new, like I've never been running, I would like to start doing this. I really like the idea and I'm start running and... I'm enjoying that. I want to go further. I want to, to go longer. Like you did a few years ago. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you need to set the priorities, what you want to do. And so if, if that is a priority for you, you will find the time. 
So I wake up four o'clock in the morning and I go out for running. I wake up five o'clock if I sometimes and I go out for running. I find the time. If I'm going to have a busy day and I know that I'm going to be very tired at the end of the day and probably I'm going to have guests at night at home or I will cook to my family that I do almost every day, uh, every night I cook dinner, it, it makes that a priority for me as well. So I, how can I do that? I have to set a priority. I would do that. Mm-hmm. And, and that's it. So you have to commit yourself to that. And f- time is a matter of priority. I don't have time for this. No, you, you, it's not your priority. So you that comes back to you have a very, very strong sense of purpose in your life around yeah. the tasks that you prioritize. Yeah, and then you need to, to really be full on on the moment. So this is what I'm doing now. I'm going to do the best I can and I'm going to do it once and I won't visit this again because I'm going to do it. So you're not dragging a trailer of past baggage with you at every moment in time and you're also not getting too far in front of yourself at every moment in time. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Power of now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, more or less, yeah, you have to to live strong, you know, what you are here, what you're doing now and what is happening now. I think we we preoccupy ourselves too much. We are always worried about what is going to be tomorrow if it's going to rain. Yep. Uh, yeah, it's going to come in ways. Let's live moment and let's get there. Uh, but the other thing, it's what what helps me to set those priorities to have a sense of what I where I want to be in five years time. Mm-hmm. So I have that crystal clear, and that doesn't come for free. You need to think carefully where I would like to be in five years. If you don't know, stop now. Think carefully where you would like to be in five years time. Or ten years time, if you can. And am I allowed to ask the answer to that question, Paul? Oh yeah, yeah, for me. <laughs> yeah, in, in terms of science, there are a number of things I really would like to see the work that I do at CSR really growing a lot. And I we're going to expand on that in a moment. Expand yeah. that, yeah, yeah. I, that would be great uh, if if I can see that that work going further. Uh, in terms of, I don't want to stop running. I think there are a couple of things that I want to do in terms of running, at least to experience. Uh, I heard recently ultra running is all about uh, four things, and they come in a sequence. And when those sequences happen, and I think I'm experienced that that it is physical is the first layer of running when you exhaust your your physique, you're tired. Your, your body asks you so to stop. So we're, we're in a race at the moment yeah. where 50 k in and we get tired. Am I understanding it, this? Yeah. Okay, great. Keep and then going. it becomes mental because there's a no, I, you can go further. You can keep going and you keep pressing. So then you're in the pain cave and your brain is like, move through it, we're on it, keep going, you keep can going, do this. Yeah. You can Brilliant. do this, yeah. Stop listening to your body. It's lying to you, keep going, you can do it. You control, your mind can do it. So you, you it becomes mental. And then you start question, reasoning. Does it make sense what I'm doing here? This doesn't make any sense. I'm hurting myself. I'm tired. What I'm doing? I'm in the middle of nowhere, running this stupid distance. Did I ever think this was going to be fun? <laughs> yeah, and then it becomes emotional in a way. Uh-huh. So it, it, is, it is where you have to put your heart in and think for the bigger purpose of why you're doing that. And you breaking your limits you're just going further you you may cry even it becomes emotional at that moment it may become spiritual as well so there's five things yeah. <laughs> so 
yeah, the four, the physical, the mental, emotional, and the spiritual. And I heard that from a runner from the US, I forgot his name, he's a fruitarian, he's well, really well known, and I think he encapsulated well the concept of what ultra running is. It's not just about the distance going beyond the marathon, it's about going through those four experiences yeah. in your life, yeah. yeah. And really five, because if you add in the spiritual to the end of that, it almost it is. So in some ways, ultra running and trail running can become a path to enlightenment. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> in a way, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You literally break a physic and you have to go beyond that. Uh, but not everyone has to do that. In a way, you can just enjoy the trace and have a beautiful experience yeah. running there and engaging with nature, appreciating that, and listening to birds singing, and little creatures running from <laughs> you or with you sometimes. I had a bat once following me for a long time. Mm-hmm. I had a headlamp at night and full of moths around. Uh, they were attracted by the light that was running, and they were there, and a little bat was coming all the time and eating them. <laughs> so it was following me for about 500 meters, and just passing just inches of my face, just and flying. Could see just <laughs> and if you'd never picked up a pair of running shoes, you never would have ever had that experience, yeah. or knowing that that was possible. Oh, I love it. But Paolo, I'm, I feel like I've jumped ahead and I, I'm, in, I'm embarrassed almost for the, the listeners at this point because they must surely have questions around what your career has meant to you. You've mentioned science on numerous occasions. Can you, can you frame that? You went to Germany and studied. Yeah, I, I did, I'm a physicist, so I studied physics in Brazil. And I, I started electrical engineering. I did four years of electrical engineering in Brazil, five years for you to become a, uh, an engineer in electronics. So for me, it was four years, and then I said, no, I don't want this anymore. I don't like this electronics. I think I, I, I want to understand why things are happening, not just to build things, to make things. Uh, I want to understand why this is why nature behaves like this and that was naturally I said okay I will drop and move to physics so I I started again Wow! so I did physics uh, then I moved I did applied physics in my masters it was mechanical engineering material sciences and then I moved to Germany to do my PhD and that was a calculated decision I thought I thought I need to do my PhD with one of the best groups in the world, and that was in Germany. Challenges were language, different country again. Um, I was married. Uh, uh, for me, was 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 uh, I found a fantastic person, and I, I proposed in one month of dating. <laughs> and we were students when we got married. We knew what we want, and and we are still married twenty years after. So here we are. <laughs> quite a strong theme for you Paolo right through the story that I'm getting this morning is you do know what you want that's an amazing knack is that just something that has come natural or do you sit down and you really write things out and think about them how do you how do you know what you want (laughs) yeah in a way I know I know what I want it comes from the gut yeah 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 and I, I, that for me is clear that I don't want, and I know what I don't want as well. So it mm-hmm. is, it is important. Uh, for me, for example, and we start the year. You may have a wish list of things that you would like to do. Uh, 
I may have a couple of concrete things that I want might be to eat more vegetables, to start exercising, might be something like that. But for me, it's what in, in myself that I don't like and what do I would like to change. Mm-hmm. Particular things that I don't like, and that is where probably I will start getting or be, becoming a better person. For me, purpose, again, it's, it's playing very, very loud. Yeah. And that is, if this is not helping me towards that, then I should probably stop. Wow. That's so crazy. Yeah, so I went to Germany and uh, I did my PhD in natural sciences. Then it becomes, at that level, science, it becomes a mix of things. So um, it's in physics, but but there are a lot of chemistry in and a lot of electronics again. So I, I draw off my background in electronics into. And the whole work was in a group that was developing an instrument to be sent to Mars. So I helped building one of the instruments that were selected by the European Space Agency and by NASA for their 2003 missions to Mars. So the instrument was a nuclear resonant equipment that is able to analyze minerals that contain iron on the surface of Mars. Uh, the instrument was about the size of a washing machine, and then we miniaturized that to the size of a, a just a cup. Yeah. Wow. So it's a little, little mud, mug. Um, the 2003 mission from ESA, from the European Space Agency, crashed on the surface of Mars. So, and actually was the best instrument we ever built. Oh, no. <laughs> and that was my Christmas present in 2003. So it was a complete, uh, yeah, it was so, so difficult because there were, I, uh, it was a lot of work to get to that point. Uh, and that puts a lot of pressure then on what was going to happen just after one week that. after, on the 3rd of January, 2nd of January here in, in Australia. What is going to happen when we land with spirit? So the landing of his spirit went absolutely well. Mm-hmm. And we were, then three weeks later, we landed with the other rover, the Opportunity. So Spirit and Opportunity were supposed to work for three months. And at that time, I was already back in Brazil, uh, not with my PhD title yet, because I was waiting the data from Mars to come, but I was working for a mining company that, that seconded me to NASA to work at uh, the United States. So I was back in, then in Pasadena, in California, working at JPL uh, for three months, for four months because of this three weeks difference. And then that was it. For me, it was when the mission was going to finish. But guess what? The rovers didn't stop. And they're still healthy. Uh, and was keep going going. I couldn't ask anymore my the generous offer of my employer to, to leave me and working indefinitely on Mars and not on Earth. <laughs> mining here, come on, not on Mars. <laughs> so I had to go back, and we're still working at, you know, from, from uh, with, with Internet, we can get access to data and analyze the results. So we are now here 13 years after that. And the rovers are still working. And you're still involved with the I'm rovers. I'm still involved. Yeah, I I got today some fresh results from Mars. I probably could show you later. So, yeah. So, ha, I feel fortunate. <laughs> so, sorry. Explain it. I maybe I'm naive. Maybe the listeners already know the answer to this question. But 
what is it about Mars? Like, why Mars? What are you looking for? What's driving those missions? Yeah, we have scientific objectives to discover if Mars was once wet. So there was water on Mars. Back in 2003, we had no answer to that question. Uh, in 1997, we landed on Mars with another rover called Sojourner, and it, they found only basalt and primary rocks, rocks that never found water. Otherwise, they would have transformed into different minerals through weathering. So that was not the case at that point. Uh, but the landscape on Mars suggests to us that we had a lot of water, so what's going on? Uh, back in the 70s, we, we landed also with Vikings, and was the same kind of of uh, rocks. So is Mars wet or we are landing in the wrong spot? So the the decision from NASA was to send rovers to different places where select better where we're going to land and, and send those rovers. So we landed and for the first couple of weeks we had no answer on that. We found the same rocks that Sojourner and Vikings lander found. There was nothing new. And the big discovery came with opportunity when we landed on a small crater called Eagle. Uh, and we found then gerocyte and hematite, two minerals that you need water to form. So you now know that the work that you have assisted in with NASA has led to the discovery of water on Mars. Yeah, that was uh, that series of papers about the discovery of, of water, of, of a past water, a wet environment on Mars was was identified as the breakthrough of the year in 2004 by wow. Science magazine. So it, it was a big discovery. So that's like the Olympics of science in some degree oh, yeah, when absolutely. it comes to space. Yeah, oh, yeah absolutely. Uh, I'm really, really proud of what we have achieved and I'm very honoured to be part of that team uh, and still being part of it. Yeah. So... <coughs> What does that mean for us now we know that water is on Mars? What, what takeaway message are we looking for from that discovery now? Yeah, and that is the purpose again. Why are we doing this? Mm. Are we doing this just to drive hovers on Mars and discover if there was water there? What that means for me? So if you, I, I will tell a short story, and, but that will bring the answer to, to that question. So about 500 years ago, we thought we were in the center of the universe mm -hmm. and everything has to turn around us. So we were made by images, semblance of God. And we are on Earth and everything is turning around us. So we are so important. We are in the center of everything. So that is homocentrism and geocentrism, so correlated. And when Copernicus and Kepler... Galileo said, no, actually we are turning around the sun. That was a difficult time because there was a rupture between beliefs and knowledge. And then both the uh, homocentrism and geocentrism, they were, in a way, homocentrism is still present as part of our religion beliefs, but the geocentrism was not present anymore. So there was a rupture. And we satisfy ourselves saying, okay, we're still important. And this sun, we call it King Astro, and we're going to live with this. And we were okay with that for about 400 years. Some, something around 100 years ago, we discovered that the light being emitted by the sun and the light emitted by stars, they are of the same nature. What's going on here? So is our sun just another star? that is just close by, that why it looks bigger? And the answer is yes. How many stars we have in the universe? Our king astro is what? 
So if you go to Sandy, Sandy Bay, Long Beach, and get a little bit of a cup of sand and put on a, on a table and count how many grains of sand you have in a cup, it's going to be a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, can you imagine in a truck on the whole beach? We have more stars in the universe than grain of sands in all beaches of the world. Oh, my God. Wow. So uh, we lose importance again. So let's regain importance to say that, well, okay, we live in the only solar system. It's the only star with planets around that we know. And that was true until yesterday, literally. Until, yes, sorry, yesterday. 80s, 80s yeah. Okay, yeah. 1980s, yeah. when we discover another planet orbiting with the help of the telescope we have in Tassie. Uh. We discover another planet, the exoplanet, in a lot of, another solar system. So another star with planets. Okay, we live in the only planet with life. Well... What's next with intelligent life? Though I doubt we have intelligent life on Earth. But <laughs> uh, so we're still looking at answering that question. And that brings back to us who we are, where we came from, how life was formed here. Are we that privileged that we are the only grain of sand, or we are orbiting a small grain of sand that is, life is present? Come on, it's just... Yeah, now it goes to believe, but this is where we can... With the technology we have today, we're still in the caves in terms of technology. How we go to Mars, we do these wonderful things. We have beautiful images from Mars. Yeah, we are still just at the beginning of our journey in terms of technology. We can only go to the next planet. Or the, the limits of our solar system yeah. is nothing. Yeah. Oh, it's so mind-blowing. Like, yeah, I even remember back in school being asked to stand on an oval and you know, this person is Mars and this one is Jupiter and, and it would just to give you that perspective of how big the solar system was. Yeah. So for us, like, again, the immortals who work on Earth <laughs> with our purpose, it, it yeah. is a hard concept to grasp. And But to reframe what you're saying, the, that the work you're doing on Mars is to help answer bigger questions about who we are, where we come from and what is possible, I guess, going forward. Yeah. And that brings the beauty of physics in a way, so my professional activity. Because I do nuclear resonance to discover minerals that will tell me about the evolution of the solar system. So I'm talking about the, the nuclei and doing nuclear resonance to understand what's going on with the solar system. It's only something that physics can bring together. Mm -hmm. So professionally, I'm, 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 in terms of what I have done, it's just amazing. And it uh, is. And I it, mean, it amazes me what we can oh, do. Yeah. And it, it, it blows me away. It doesn't just amaze me, it blows my mind. But, but then if I jump forward, the interesting thing about you is that it didn't stop on Mars. Tell us about how you've gone from Mars to working with... Bees. Yeah, let me tell you. <laughs> Honeybees, yeah. just so that people understand the bee in there. <laughs> Let's make the connection between Mars and bees. Mars yeah. and bees. They're a little <laughs> the bit answer different. is technology and challenge. Mm -hmm. yeah. So the challenge is uh, when you need to build an instrument to send to space, there are a number of requirements given to you. So NASA comes to you or the European Space Agency or Japanese Space Agency and say, okay, I want to send this payload to that mission. And it should not weigh more than 400 grams. It should not consume more than 3 watts of, now of, of power. Uh, it should have these dimensions. It should work this way. It should be resistant to the vibrations of the launch of the rocket and the landing, entry, descent, landing, the EDL procedures on the surface of the planet. 
should survive radiation in space, temperature variations, and all these constraints, plus the miniaturization that is involved in that process, is what is the technology work that we have to do in building an instrument. So we thought, okay, what about doing that, but taking sensors on Earth, making them smaller? So we, this is a concept that came about the 80s as well by Pister from Berkeley. It's called smart dust, that you can have very small particles that are actually smart enough to make measurements and transmit the data back to you, so you would have a cloud of sensors doing measurements for you. Interesting concept, never achieved. And there are a number of reasons for that. One of them is power. So we don't have enough small batteries that will store enough energy to power the processors and to transmit the data. So there are a number of challenges mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. We thought, okay, let's take this challenge on board, but not just to spread things in the environment, let's put them on the back of insects. There was one constraint for us, if I put on a fly, the fly will fly away anywhere <laughs> food is. That is what drives flies. Or if I put on a moth, it goes away. What would be the best one would be social insects, because they come back, so I can collect all the data when they come back. So we could work with ants, we could work with mites, we could work with... Animals. Anything that comes back to a home. Yeah, basically. wasps. Yeah. Bees. When we saw bees, wait a minute. We heard there was a problem going on with bees. Let's look that more carefully. And then we realized that the bees were really in trouble. When was this pallet? Uh, it was four years ago. Four years ago. So not yeah. that long ago. Yeah. yeah. So we decided then to start planning this research in terms of developing small microsensors that we could attach to bees and let them fly, collect data, or get information about them. Like if we... Uh, microchip dogs and cats, we can microchip bees as well. And this is what we started doing. Uh, we started tagging bees about two years ago, where we had the first sensors attached to them and start making measurements. Yeah. So, you know, again, it's, it's just such a recurring theme with you in a positive way that not only did you see a challenge that you saw could be uh, overcome, so making particles small enough that could go on the backs of flying insects or any insect for that matter, but you needed a purpose behind that to make that a worthy, I guess, assignment, a worthy task. Is that correct? Yeah, that's true. Yeah. yeah, and so food security was the issue that you began to identify. Yeah, if you look, bees were declining in numbers uh, by any assessment, and even some species are being declared extinct on the merge of extinction uh, over the last 50 years. The number of bees going down steadily. Uh, at the same time, we were able to produce more food. Bees are responsible for pollination of almost everything we eat. One third of everything we eat depends on bees. Uh, so a big piece of our economy is also relying on these little creatures. But they are going down, we were able to produce more, and we were able to produce more because of things that I have seen in the farm of my grandfather, mechanization, selection of better seeds, intensification, uh, management of water resources, and all this is, is enabling Chemicals. us to produce more. But we need to produce 60% more food over the next three decades to feed the population. And if we look at the trend of pollinators going down, 
and food demand going up, this is unsustainable. Mm. There will be one point within the next three decades, if we keep going the way we are, that we will not be able to produce food to feed us. As in, till now, we've relied on science to overcome the obstacles of natural pollination and natural processes, but we're going to reach a point where the science can't keep up with the demand. Is that what we're saying? Yeah, the pollinators won't be present anymore, so we don't have bees to pollinate. And when you say a third of our food relies on bees and it's the the process of bee pollination, is that green foods, plant-based foods, or is that all foods? So that includes our meat, our dairy... Uh, dairy, uh, for example, Lutzen, uh, mm-hmm. we need bees to pollinate them. So, yeah. But most of it would be fruits like apples, pears, uh, cherry. We use bees to pollinate. Almost every vegetable needs bees to pollinate. So what is the, what's the threat then of this? So, okay, food is in having the quantity. What's that going to mean for the everyday person in, say, five or ten years' time? Or what, what time frame are we also looking let's, at? Let, there are different scenarios depending on where you are. Let's imagine what happened in Tasmania some years ago when we had Vyazi uh, in Queensland. Uh, the yeah. price of bananas in Tasmania went bananas. So we have to pay $14 <laughs> to have a kilogram of bananas. Yeah. Uh, so if we don't have bees, something like that's going to happen. We see inflation on products we take for granted. It's going to be beekeeping is not going to be a sustainable activity unless you have to pay more to rent hives to to make the pollination. So it's just a demand and offer balance. So bees become more expensive for you to have. Then farmers will need to transfer that cost to you. Mm-hmm. Are you willing to pay $100 for a bag of apple? If not, then farming becomes unsustainable. Yeah. So this is one of the scenarios. You would see inflation gradually increasing the price of products we take for granted today. So this will have a huge impact, for example, in the nutritional quality of our population. So our kids won't have that little apple to, to in, in their lunchbox anymore. They probably will have something processed there. To have uh, the wood that we have today probably is going to be tomorrow will be very different from what we have today. Mm -hmm. I fear that we won't have the same. I won't offer my kids the wood that I have today or even the childhood that I had. So this is this is one of the scenarios but we are talking about a developed country where you can have what eventually to pay more for something. Mm -hmm. If you're talking about a country underdeveloped that they need to produce crops today to feed the population and you have a break in production, then you would have starvation and you will have then refugees fleeing, famine, because they don't have anything to eat. Simply, they are not there. Bees didn't came this mm-hmm. season, so I can't feed my population. And this is what really drive us. I'm not building microsensors. We are building food security. We are building a future of the world. And this is what is driving us to, yeah. to do this research and give us a lot of sense of urgency. We must do it. And if we are not doing this, probably if we step back, another group, research group, to be in this position will take five years mm. if they are successful. And we might not have the time. We might not even have five years. Yeah. Wow. And you can see, I mean, you can hear it in your voice, you can see it. And I'm, I'm sitting across from you, I can see it in your face that there is an urgency for you around what you're doing now. 
Absolutely, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And this is what drives me to come every day to work. You know, it, it is the purpose again. I'm not going to work, sit down and open and answer emails. There is a purpose on that. And this purpose is beyond what we do. And this is all about the impact that we try to achieve. And scientists, like we have at CSR, with that huge sense of responsibility and the sense of purpose and the impact of what we can achieve, mm -hmm. clearly articulated, is what can transform our nations, what can transform our world. And I think there is a key role that we can play in our society to really solve these big problems and make this world better. Yeah. And then I can hear that then this links back to our earlier conversations about running and health and those desires because I imagine that that in the back of your brain, I'm, I'm just trying to put myself in your shoes and to feel what it would be like to almost live with what I would almost call a pressure. It's a purpose, but there's a pressure to your purpose as well that you need to kind of be the healthiest, strongest, best version of yourself so that you can work at your optimal potential. Is that correct? Where is that where the running links in? Yeah, that, that comes comes by as well. Uh, what what drove me to, to drive was was a call from my was a, literally a call, it's not a phone call, but was a conversation I had with my grandfather about two, two years and a half ago. My father passed away, and I was by chance in Brazil at the time, so I, I couldn't see him, but I, I, I visited my grandfather. And he came to me and said, look, I, I, I thought that you were looking through photos, I haven't seen you for the last decade or so, and... And uh, I was going to say you were strong, but actually you're fat. <laughs> what are you going to do about this? You know, I'm not happy. Look, I'm, I'm, at that time he was 92 years old. He said, oh, no, I'm 92 years old, 93. I'm, I'm healthy, I'm strong, I'm still working. You have the same DNA. What are you going to do with this DNA? Is going to just throw it away? Are you going to die as young as your father? I want you to change. What are you going to do about it? So, jeez. <laughs> so that was a call. And for me, it was, it was like a wake-up call. Say, I have to do something about this. And I, I lost in about six months close to 40 kilos just by starting looking more carefully on the diet and running. Wow. And that was walking, running at the beginning as, as I could. I didn't have... The last time I was running probably was when I was doing my judo or playing soccer, so that's a long time ago. For me, it was very hard to start. But I said, okay, I have to make this happen, and I'm sure I can. There's nothing that I can't do. Come on, I can't do this. And I couldn't stop, literally. And then was the first 5K, and then was the 8K, and then was the 10K, and then the half marathon, and then the marathon, and then now comes the ultra in less than a month. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, and what's next? The ultra will be 60 2Ks in Tarawera, then it will be the 100K in UTA. Bring it on. I mean, <laughs> well, I'm going to break. That's my limit. <laughs> I was going to say that. Like, wow, you know, so many of us like lean into a challenge and then get afraid because of injury or running out of energy. Or... Uh, it's, part of, it's part of the journey. Come on, it's not going to be easy. It's not easy for anyone. You know, if you get, I got injured a couple of times. The first time was scary because I, geez, what's happening? It's hurting so much. When the second time, I knew it was coming. I could read my body better. So, but I got support from great professionals, a physiotherapist, uh, from a sports nutrition, 
from athletes like you and, and <laughs> others that can really give fantastic advice and, and coach. So this is where, and reading, I read a lot, and you know, podcasts like this can really help us a lot to, yeah. to learn more from others' experience. So, so to, to reframe this part of the conversation, you had a purpose to find health for your grandfather, driven by your grandfather. You then became somewhat of a scientific experiment where you've found curiosity in how you could do it better and go further and go faster. <laughs> <laughs> and then you surrounded yourself by the support team that you needed. Is that yeah, correct? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, th this is essential. Uh, you, can't, you can't do that without support. Uh, mm. you, you need to... There is a beautiful community. Runners are just fantastic. They're open to share mm. whatever they know and give you hints about this. So if you need gear, go to find your feet. You're going to find fantastic gear. There <laughs> are people you. to give you advice. <laughs> this is where I go. <laughs> uh, but if you have... Uh, you know, if, if you fear about some injury, go to your GP. Definitely, GP would recommend you to go to a physiotherapist and like have a good discussion <laughs> and a sports doctor. Yeah. Uh, nutritionist and uh, uh, you know this this is where you you so you what you're saying is you you can be an individual in your pursuit you can have your own purpose your own dreams your own aspirations and goals but at the end of the day you still have to have a team around you they don't have to be there at every step of the journey but you need to know where you can turn at certain points of the journey absolutely yeah. and they have they can play to the best of their strengths to help you and they mm. are there to help you know yeah. and you can't do that those things alone for sure and in some ways that's it is, it is quite scary to especially as an adult to have a moment where you you put your hand up and go I don't know what to do in this situation. <laughs> I need I need help, isn't it? There yeah. is and, and the, probably the, the most interesting one comes from family. That they start seeing, well, what are you doing? I mean, why you start running? Are you crazy? And that first criticism sometimes comes from inside. And then they start seeing you change and they start looking at you and say, what? Jeez, he's doing really well on this. And start yeah. getting proud of it. Now my... My kids, for example, they are my little aid station. I, near, <laughs> I live nearby the trail that I love running, so I go running there. And if I have a long run like tomorrow, so I'm going to run for five hours, I'll go out. And then I come back and I change my... my and they prepared everything, my nutrition, oh, my hydration, beautiful. and everything's ready. So you can engage your family in that process and make something interesting for your kids and explain that they're so curious. They want to learn why you're taking this gel, why you're taking this... Uh, 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 tablets of uh, high, electro electrolytes and why you put one or two and why you put one here and two there why this has caffeine and that not <laughs> and you start explaining them they, they they really get they get to understand that and sometimes yeah. that's questions you don't know and then you have to look together and, uh. and make everything and even my wife now is working is, is running as well so she she's, she, she started running, running she got, as well yeah. Colleagues around in the office. They in, and it does rub back. off, doesn't it? You know, yeah. you just get in and do your best and people will start to notice that after a while. You don't have to preach it. You don't have to mention it after a while. It'll just make hopefully one spark in someone else. That's yeah. That's been my experience. But I, I, have to, I have to admit I have one question yeah. because, again, I hear it a lot as a coach or someone who's helped in the coaching world that... 
uh, people say, oh, I'm not a runner. I, I used to swim back in the day, but I'm not a runner. I mean, you were a nearly Olympic-level judo player, you know, almost the best that you can be in that sport. And then you've turned to a sport, which, yes, you did a bit back as a kid, but it wasn't, it wasn't your calling, you could say, at that time. So you really had to go back and start right at the very beginning. Mentally, how did you, how did you address that challenge? I think the, the challenge changed uh, when you stopped saying that I'm not a runner to say I am. I'm not do, I don't do runs. I am a runner. And when you, you incorporate that into your being, then it becomes part of you. For mm-hmm. me, it was was very important part of reflecting back that I am not a runner. Stop saying that you are. You, you, or at least you can be. You can be. Yeah, and yeah. go into that process. You can be a runner, the best runner you can. So. And a runner is literally anyone who puts two running steps together. <laughs> and I, I, I'm re- it's just suddenly you flick this switch on in my brain that when when I was younger I was a swimmer um, and aspiring to be at that sort of elite level and probably had a gift that could have taken me there had I wanted to pursue it. But when I made the transition into running, I too had that I'm not a runner, I'm a swimmer who can run. And it, it took so long to shake that and at the end I, I the only way I shook it was because I had to, because it was my limiting factor that I didn't see myself as a runner. But now I kind of I really like to I find sometimes that, that I'm a runner can put a lot of pressure on people or it can drive them almost too far. And now I love to rephrase it personally and say, I am Hanny who loves to run. You know, or I'm Hanny who has an aspiration to run, and I find for me that can be the healthiest way to yeah to think about that concept of being a runner. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think there is there is this it's all back again to the mind when when you feel yourself tired, these negative thoughts come all the time that I'm yeah. not running, what I'm doing here. So this is where I say yes, I, I am already there subconsciously. I I take myself as a runner, but. Uh, Again, for me, what what a runner is is just that this is what I like to do. This is what I love to do, and I'm doing this as yeah. best as I can. And the other the other thing that I see, I found myself putting that probably is the competitive aspect is trying to compare myself to somebody else. Geez, how could this guy finish that in this time? I'm going to take almost the double of the time to do the same. Can I'm so bad on this, and I start stop. Wait a minute. He's 20 years younger than you. <laughs> I'm not that young. I'm 45 years old. And I'm, I'm going to be 20, 46 soon. So it, it, is, it is where you need to say, okay, I am the best I can. And I have my age. I have all the, all the aspects of my background playing a role here. But I'm doing the best as I can. You know, it, I'm doing better than almost everyone that is not doing anything at all. Yeah, just, the 99% yeah. of people still on the yeah. couch. Just, just, just yeah, be easy with yourself in a way. Yeah. You don't have to, to compare yourself. Just be the best. And that is the beauty of, of this sport. You come at the end, you get a medal. Come on. Yeah. It's your own medal. It's your own time or... It's just about being a part of it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't even have to be races is what I'm finding now as well. I know, know? absolutely. It's whatever whatever you want to take, wherever you want to take it. So I'm kind of, I have one more question on the running before we sort of um, think about just a few last concepts. But one is that the running for you was a part of helping you to come back from a place of 
ill health or poor health towards being where you are now. So you've gone on that journey. But you also mentioned nutrition, and it's a question that always pops up for me as well is, you know, what do you do? So can you just quickly, briefly just tell us a little bit about how you think about nutrition now and also given the conversation we had earlier about food security? Oh yeah, uh, I, I eat healthier today, so I'm, I'm very conscious the food that I can see, it is important. So I can see an apple, it, I can't see apple juice, it's different, I, I, it's not processed, I prefer raw food, you know, that, is, that has changed a lot, so this is what I do today. So raw food, you say? Yeah, more yeah. raw, more, more, sometimes I go for a few days just... Uh, um, uh, without any meat, uh, just and I feel better sometimes. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I'm gonna do that in the future, but um, uh, vegetarian, it's it's something for a couple of days that, that helps me a lot. I'm very conscious about the balance that I get today in terms of carbohydrates and protein and fat, and just trying to balance that. Uh, cutting a lot of sugar and sugary things. I don't know what was the last time I had a Coke or a soft drink. It was definitely probably two years ago when I had one. And has that decision shifted away from being a weight thing to a health thing? How, what, how does sugar, how does that play out in your body if you were to have it? Uh, if I have today, I feel bad. That is that is how much it changed. So I, I before it was a necessity, now it becomes something that I avoid because it's not going to be good for me. Mm-hmm. I don't feel I don't feel well if I have too much sugar. If I get a, a sugary donut today, I'm gonna be dizzy. I don't feel well anymore. Mm-hmm. It just changed the way mm-hmm. I'm processing that. So for me, eating becomes part of a purpose again. You know, <laughs> being healthier and and better choices I made because of the sport and because of the intensity or the amount of volume of working that I do in running today I, I, I need to balance that to support my running mm. just before the runs during the run recovery so there is a lot of choices that you, you, you can select and what works for me works uh, for me might not work for who's yeah. listening to us but uh, the principle is the same, so yeah. you need to be uh, to to be a better runner. You need to eat properly. Yeah. And I I can eat pizzas if I want, but I won't be the good runner the that best I can. Runner you yeah. want to be. And what else do you aside from nutrition do you do to nurture yourself and to re- to allow your body to recover from the mental, physical, and emotional strains of life? Ah, sleeping well is so important. And mm-hmm. that helps me in my work, it helps me in everything. So mm-hmm. quality sleep is not just the amount of hours, but it's how well you sleep. That is important. Active rest, rest doesn't mean that you're sitting on a couch for yeah. hours, so you need to walk around and be active. So that is that is part, and then nutrition again, uh, it's something mm-hmm. you get. Balance the protein and, and whatever you, you, need to, you need to adapt. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, hydration is so important yeah. yeah oh my god i could talk to you for hours this is ridiculous and i'm looking at the time and i'm thinking oh we have to we have to draw things to a conclusion so maybe we will have a follow-up conversation at some point sure. i just want to finish with a few what i would call fun questions yeah. um but they may be also meaningful questions what is your greatest fear mm. wow what's my greatest yeah I think it is not is to see 
a world that is not going to be, or it's going to be worse than I had for my kids. I really want the next generation of us to be in a better world, and I fear that we are not going to get there. So this is where I feel that we might have failed towards what we have, or what's the purpose of us being here. Uh, it's like I had a professor, he's an Indian, uh, was back in Brazil, and I was frustrated with a few things happening at the university at that time, and and with some of the professors that I had, well, a couple of issues there, but he came to me and said, look, Paulo, a real professor, uh, it's like a real father, you know, you need to get your students better than you are. Mm -hmm. And you need to see your son better than you are. Otherwise, mm -hmm. you have failed as a professor and as a father. Aww. So that has impacted me so much. Aww. And I fear that I'm not going to succeed on what means to be a better father and what it means to be a better teacher. If my kids are not better than me and if my students are not better scientists than I am. So this is where... Everything leads to a better world in the, in the mm. future in terms of big picture. And I, I'm, I'm afraid that us as a community, as a society, we are not, we are looking at the short term too much. And my biggest fear is that we do not cut this mm. way of thinking in the short term and do not build a better world for mm. us in the future for our next generations. And yeah. I, oh, I, I can empathize <clears throat> my only thing that I can add to that part of the conversation is that when I was out hiking in the mountains with two beautiful, beautiful wilderness photographers and family looking at the devastation of the fires that hit last summer in Tasmania, which we now know were a direct result of climate change and a warming environment, I was having a meltdown and I was thinking, what am I doing? I pursue running I run a retail store which is about consumerism which is how my brain was interpreting it at the time what am I doing and my friend Dan he put his hand on my shoulder and as we were walking along through this black and charred landscape and he said Hannah at some point you have to believe that there are all these amazing people out there doing amazing things and eventually we will all come together and I guess it's become part of my journey and why we're sitting here right now having this conversation is to link voices together to let the learning spread through communities that might not otherwise hear your learning had they not had an interest for example in science mm. so uh, that that is my that is my wish <laughs> yeah, um, that in, in, in a way that's my fear that we won't be successful so if you ask my fear that is where yeah it's a long answer to to a simple question but no yeah. I don't think it is I think it's a it's an amazing answer and I, I really hope that it resonates with a lot of people because it comes down to individual choices as well as voices such as yourself so on a probably more fun note if time and money was of no objective what would you do more of what would you fill your life with <laughs> exactly the same Oh, Absolutely. I probably will work a little bit less so I can recover better from my runs. <laughs> that's the only thing I would change. If I, if I win the lottery, that's exactly... I probably will have my own lab somewhere. Uh, probably within CSR, it's a great place to be. I just love it. <laughs> so th this is exactly what I would do. I won't change anything at all. I will live in the same house. I will 
come to work at the same place because I have a purpose, and that is doesn't money doesn't change that. Oh. Uh, it, it can't. I just probably I wish I could really balance that. So if I can run a little bit more, probably will come to work, you know, different times or a little bit less, just to to recover better from my runs, and then I can run further. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're such a beautiful person. Oh, oh come on. <laughs> that is so good. Um, do you think we ever find our feet? Uh, I think it's a journey, and my feet, it's comfortable where it is, and that brings me to kind of way of thinking. I found my feet, in a way, I love Tasmania. I, I am where I am today in my career, in my personal life, and the place that I live, and the the journey that I am in, the things that I do, and where I want to go. It it makes me really think that I am in the right path. So my my feet are changing all the time. So it's a journey. I find my feet at this spot, and the next one, and the next one will be. I. I I, I fear that I, if I find my feet in a comfortable place, too comfortable, it's going to be miserable. So I need to keep moving. Kick off the slippers and put the running shoes back yeah, on. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> so, yeah, the answer is yes. Yeah. I love it. But might not be the same in, in soon because I, I, I have to keep improving and keep going. Yeah. Amazing. So... My last question is, um, do you have a New Year's resolution? Yeah, I just want to be better. That, that's it. I have, I have a few objectives, I would say, uh, uh, professional ones. I have a couple. I have to finish a book that I'm, I'm writing on project management that is Whoa. sitting there for a while. This one thing I want to do. Uh, there are... Uh, few PhD students that I want to see going through successfully and starting their career, so I want to help them on that. So mm-hmm. I have that in. Uh, I want to see my older daughter doing well in, in her exams and, and going and helping her in that activity, in that process. And uh, I have my runs. I have two big A races uh, that I want to be successful there. But for me, the resolution is, is deep. It's really finding things that I'm not happy about myself and taking them away from and saying, no, this has to change. I have to be better in this area. I have to be better in that mm. area. Just be a better person. Um, 2006 was 16 was great year, but was very tiring. I want to be in, in a better position in 31st of December 2017 and I look back and say okay I have achieved as much but I'm not as tired as I was absolutely exhausted. How are you going to do that or do you know, not know the answer to that yet? Yeah I think uh, everything in life it's not just um, it's just not a spring you need to have not only the purpose but you need to know where you want to be in five years time and you know and what you have to do to get there. And and uh, it is an endurance in a way. So how can we have my long runs in a way that it's going to be more in the endurance pace and not just uh, bumping on on rocks or, or roots and difficult terrain. The terrain is not going to be easy. Uh, I know what's coming, mm-hmm. but it has to... I have to endure through that process on how can I manage better my energy 
going up here, yeah, yeah. going through those difficult pieces. Wow. So for me, it's it's just for me, my professional life or my personal life or my runs are just the same. Mm-hmm. And I'm bringing a lot of a lot of learning lessons from my running into my life mm-hmm. because it's you can you can complete a marathon unless you understand what what pace means or what nutrition strategy you have what is your hydration strategy or even a ultra running it's just the same and if you go further then what's going to be your crew supporting you in that process you know it is it is something you need to i bring so much from that into my life yeah and i it's just a way for me to learn i'm still learning a lot from this sport and and this is what makes this so exciting i mean i just want to Keep going. Yeah. Life in twenty seventeen and not a sprint there an ultra marathon. I think <laughs> I think that lesson is one I'm gonna walk away with ballet. <laughs> You've just had a student right at that moment. Um actually then I have one more question and and that is um how how do you learn these lessons like you say, you know, for example, you take things from your running and embed them in your life. Do you write? Do you journal? Do you... Yeah, I do have a journal every day. Mm-hmm. Uh, I write down uh, details of my running. Uh, some of them are in Strava. Uh, most of them I, I've written in my own journal. And I've revisited them. And when there is something that I have to learn, uh, I stopped and what, what went wrong here? Mm-hmm. What I have done that... Uh, was too hot this day and I went too fast. So that's with your yeah. running, do you do that professionally and just as Paolo the person? or? Uh, uh, I just do that for my running. Uh, my professional, I, I have notes of what I want to do on the day, so I have a to-do list, for example. I'm just trying to be very effective on that. So mm-hmm. it's just like if I have to go out for running, 4 o'clock in the morning, just leave the gear ready. So when I wake up, as soon as I am geared, I'm going out. Mm-hmm. And if I'm out, then nothing's going to put me back. So I wake up 4 o'clock in the morning. I am out. It's cold. It's raining. Or it's dark. I'm already running. Come on. I'm not going to stop. Just stop this thing and let's keep moving. <laughs> <laughs> it's something like practical things like that. So yeah. I take... But okay. what I have a lot of lessons learned. Making mistakes is part of us. There's mm-hmm. no way we can run away from that. I'm going to make so many mistakes this year that I have no... <laughs> probably more than last year because I'm trying new things all the time. But... If I don't learn from that, then I have made the biggest mistake I can. So I have to learn from my mistakes. Lessons learned are every, it's just pearls. And I, there are two ways for you to learn. Either you learn from your own experience, which is the best one, mm-hmm. or you can learn from others. And this is where coaches are there, or your nice book you read, or, or even a priest can tell you, but, or, or, or a partner can teach you a lot. But it's a learning, we're still learning, and that's, this is part of, don't, don't let it go. Write it, I, I write it down because I want to revisit them yeah. and see. Yeah. Oh, I'm wow. having a lot of fun sometimes reading things that I have made mistakes in the past. Yeah. Oh, come on. Oh, <laughs> I, I? <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. I just want to go for a run right now. <laughs> um, the, the, that leads me to one more thought that comes to mind as you talk about failing and the importance of failure to learn but I was listening to this beautiful podcast by Michael Gervais interviewing a volleyballer in America who's actually just retired and she had this philosophy that every day we're failing and if you're not 
then you're not trying hard enough because you are if you are really striving for mastery in some form or other then you you know you have to go beyond your comfort zone which will always involve an element of failing and some people could take that in a really negative light but for my brain and I see you nodding your head that your brain connects with that concept that you know that's that's fine it's part of life it's Oh yeah, and you have to laugh about yourself. You need to say, "Okay, come on, it's it, that's me again." I know I have made this mistake. How stupid I am! How could uh, I? I'm never going to make that tell mistake. Tell somebody ever else again. about it if you can, because you're going to laugh with somebody about yeah. the mistakes you have made. You know, I have done so many stupid things, and you just say, "Okay, how how look how how could I make this?" You know, you just have a big big laugh about you know mistakes you have made and and. This is this is this is what we are here experience yeah. new things and probably becomes we, we become kids again. You know, yeah. It becomes everything becomes exciting and funny again. Yeah. yeah. Oh Paolo, it has been a joy. I like I say I could talk to you for hours. Um thank you so much. Oh it's a pleasure. I really yeah. hope that our listeners and our audience and our members of our Find Your Feet community connect to a lot of the, the golden so gems that are in there and we will um, help to simplify those on our website. So we'll share that with you and your friends and uh, hope that people will continue to engage with what we're trying to do. Wonderful. So best wishes in 2017. Thank you for you too. <laughs> and at UTA, Ultra Trail Australia, 100K. It's carried, K. that's beautiful. Yeah, 100K. 100, yeah. 100K, there you go. That's crazy, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so the marathon to 100K. Yeah, it becomes jump. a little bit longer. <laughs> You'll be absolutely fine. <laughs> you know that there's enlightenment when you cross the finish line or somewhere, somewhere before the finish line. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> All right, thank you very much. Thank you.